please enjoy the following conversation with Prakash Janakiraman, the co-founder and chief architect of Nextdoor. Valued at over $1 billion, Nextdoor is an innovative and emerging social network that connects users with their neighbors and surrounding neighborhood. In this live conversation, Prakash tells the story of building Nextdoor from the ground up, touching on the far-reaching impact of social networks and their potential for bringing out the best in humanity, whether it's finding a last-minute babysitter or sharing safety tips with your neighbors. Hi, guys. Hey. What's happening? Welcome, uh, welcome to the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, since now we're, we're all neighbors now, let's, uh, let's get <laughs> Prakash. Yes, Patrick. Who are you, you know? Tell us a little bit more about who you are and also what inspired you and your team to found Nextdoor. Okay, so who I am and what inspired us to found Nextdoor. Well, um, I was born in November 1975. It was a cold day. My mother was in a great deal of pain. Are we, are we, going, are we going all the way to the... No. Um, well, as Patrick said, I started my uh, career as a software engineer. It was, it was sort of an unlikely pairing between me and software engineering as a profession. Uh, and there's a story here, which is uh, back in the day, so my parents are both immigrants from India. Uh, my dad came in in 1967, and he was part of the first wave of Asian immigrants that came after the 1965 uh, Immigration Reform Act, which kind of opened up immigration to uh, cultures outside of Europe, right? For a long time, uh, the primary immigrants to this country were not uh, from Asia and other, other countries. And so he came out here and he went to Berkeley. And he was a mechanical engineer by training, became a, a finance guy. And somewhere along the way, when I was about 11 years old, uh, I was really into video games. And this happened to coincide with the revolution uh, that was kind of home computing and, and having PCs in the home. And so my dad was just kind of always tinkering around and like playing around with PCs. And he kind of got me into that. Um, he taught me basic programming. He taught me C and Pascal. And I wanted nothing to do with it. I literally did not have any vision of like becoming a software engineer. In fact, I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, and so, as the story goes, I'll go through, through high school. I was really into sports and film and you know all, all the kinds of things that young boys, I guess, are into. And uh, I ended up going to UC Berkeley, where my dad uh, had previously gone. And I go in and I think, ah, I think I'm going to be a film major. And my dad, uh, again, Indian immigrant, uh, said, you got three choices. You can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. So uh, select wisely. Uh, and as it turns out, I actually went in undeclared uh, when I went into Berkeley. And so that was kind of my sneaky way of coming in and saying, like, yeah, 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 that sounds good. I'll be one of those three things. And maybe I'll just be nothing at all. Um, and as it turns out, I dropped out of school my senior year to go work at one of the very first uh, companies during the, the original dot-com boom. And what drew me there was not necessarily this idea that I wanted to be a software engineer, but it was really this culture that was emerging outside of kind of the computer laboratory and what was going on at Berkeley, which was really, really theoretical and um, really homogenous, very, very geeky and nerdy. It just was nothing that I wanted to be a part of. But then I actually ended up interning at this company called Excite for, does anybody remember Excite? Anybody? Yeah, a couple of people. So Excite at the time, believe it or not, um, this is in the era before Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these, these behemoths, Amazon even, um, was one of the top four properties on the entire web. And we thought the entire web at the time was about 100 million people worldwide. And so I had the opportunity to come into that company as one of its first 100 employees. Uh, I came in because of the culture. I came in not even as a software engineer. I came in as a researcher which was um, 
basically someone who scours the web and collects uh, a taxonomy of sites on the web. That's, that's what the big thing was back then. It wasn't really about search. It was about creating these hierarchical um, lists of web pages uh, that were curated. And so that was my first job. And as it turns out, because my dad had taught me how to program when I was 11 years old, uh, a lot of the like repeated things that we were doing, like all of the rote um, manual things that we were doing, I just kind of decided like, screw it, I'm just gonna automate some of these things. And so I started building tools for all of my friends and colleagues at work. And eventually someone took notice and said, well, wait a minute, this kid can code. Why don't you just come be a software engineer? And so that's actually how I became a software engineer, was by complete accident in a sense. Um, and the people that I met at Excite, and this is now back in 1996, 97, uh, ended up being really formative in my network of creating opportunities for me in the future. I ended up leaving that company uh, with a couple of the founders uh, of the company who were all really young folks, um, graduates of Stanford. I think when I got there, they were probably in their mid-20s. Uh, when I left Excite, I was probably 23 or 24 years old. I was really young. Uh, worked at a venture capital firm helped become one of the founding engineers at a small enterprise software company. Uh, and then the, the company after that is where I met my co-founders here, uh, who I'm working with today, Nirv, and, Nirv Tolia and Sarah Leary, at a company called Epinions, which again was a pioneering company around user-generated content on the web. So again, you, you gotta think pretty far back to a time where you couldn't just go on the web and get a review about a digital camera or a pair of shoes or uh, you know, the new beverage on the market. This was all really, really groundbreaking stuff at the time. And so uh, the company that Nirav had founded was really a pioneer there. And that's where we built a really strong relationship. I worked with those guys for about four years. Um, through a lot of challenging, challenging um, situations, we merged with another company. We took the company public uh, on the public markets in 2004 as shopping.com. And then the following year, we sold the company to eBay for, I think it was north of $600 million. Um, and it was, one of eBay's biggest deals at the time. Um, and that's when we all parted ways. I went to Google, uh, where I managed teams including the Google Maps team, which at the time, again, was 14 people. There were only 14 people that were working on Google Maps at the time. It had just come out of beta. Uh, the original founders of the project had kind of scattered a little bit and were working on different projects. And so we helped to grow that product uh, into kind of what you see today, the, the bones of that, uh, including the mobile site, uh, when the first iPhone launched, we were working on the user interface for the, uh, for the iPhone. We launched Satellite View, Street View, um, lots of really interesting things. And then about two and a half years in, Nirv and Sarah, who had kind of taken some time off from, from Shopping.com, they came back and they said, I think it's time. Like, let's, let's go do something. And by that time, I think I was always also feeling like it was the right time for me um, to come out and, and try something on my own and see if I could build an engineering organization, an engineering culture similar to the ones that I had enjoyed for, you know, at the time, probably 15 years of my career. So not 15, I'm not that old, but 10, 10 years, let's say 10. Um, and so that, that's a little bit about me and kind of uh, the, the next door origin story is actually a little bit unusual. It's not so unusual. You guys have probably heard about companies that have um, you know, incorporated, they have an idea and they pivot away from that idea. The, the, the pivot is like a big Silicon Valley term that uh, is loosely used to mean we're doing something other than what we originally set out to do. 
but usually it's pretty close, right? Thematically, it's pretty close. As it turns out, me and Irv and Sarah got back together, and we started a sports company because Sarah is a Hall of Fame athlete at Harvard. She's a Hall of Fame goaltender, a two-time national champion. Uh, Nirv was a nationally ranked tennis player in college. He, he played at Stanford. And so we were all, and, and I have no such pedigree. I, I'm a <laughs> weekend, weekend warrior. I used to be able to dunk a basketball when I was young, so that's, that's wow. my claim to fame. Um, but you know, we were all big sports fans, and so we started a company called Fanbase. We got funded by Benchmark Capital, who was Nirv's early investor in Opinions. So we got another whack at trying to build another company. We raised, uh, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it was $5 million in a Series A. So people actually thought it was a good idea. People believed in the team, thought it was a good idea. We built a team. We built and launched a product. The product grew, and then the product plateaued about two and a half years in. And I remember Nirv coming to me and saying, like, oh, there's got to be a bug in the system. Like, traffic has plateaued. And are you sure that the website is up? And you know, I was like, yeah, man, it's, it's up. All the metrics look good. And, Everything looks good. And so we, we kind of had this come to Jesus moment where we said, uh-oh, maybe it's us. Like maybe we built something that nobody actually cares about. And that was a really, really difficult thing to go through for us to, to kind of be confronted with this idea that we had spent two and a half years of our lives or two years of our lives at the time on something that just kind of didn't matter and, and, and had failed. And the worst part of this was we had to come back and tell our employees that what we had built wasn't working. And that was probably maybe one of the toughest moments in my career, and I would probably speak to my, my co-founders as well about this. And so we did, and we came back and we told our team of 14, hey guys, look, what we built, it's just not working, and we don't know if we're gonna keep working in sports or not. But if you'd like to stay and kind of see how the sausage is made and do it all the way from the ground up and be entrepreneurs, join us. We'll consider you co-founders, We'll recut equity. You, you'll be right there with us as part of the process. And we'll see if we can go build something that really does matter. Uh, and if you can't, if you don't have the stomach for it, if this isn't what you signed up for, sports is your life, you want to go do something else, no big deal. We'll part as friends. We'll help you find new jobs. And we'll pay you two months severance. And half the team left. And most of the engineers were part of that half. And so we were left with a team of seven people um, and we went back to our investors and we said, look, this is what's happened. We don't think things are going very well. We'd like to give back the money. We, we don't feel right about exploring and doing all this on your dime. We'd like to give back the money. And to their credit, our investors, and in particular Bill Gurley from Benchmark, who is a remarkable person, he's someone that we think of as a co-founder of the company, said, no, I think uh, I'd like for you to keep the money and I'd like for you to Put your big boy pants on and go try and do this again, right? I think you have another idea in you. And take a summer and see if you can actually find something that um, is worthy of pursuit. And so to his credit, he gave us that little push and that little bit of energy that we needed to, to try and seek out a new idea. And it just so happened that that summer, we read a New York Times op-ed. And of course, one of the lessons that we learned from Fanbase was, let's build something that is, um, more of a painkiller and less of a vitamin. Does that, does that analogy sort of make sense? Like a painkiller, when you're in pain and your head is really throbbing, you're gonna go run to the, the cabinet and you're gonna go grab that painkiller. A vitamin doesn't have that kind of pull. It doesn't have that sort of necessity in your life. So if you skip a couple days of your vitamins, no big deal, it's, you're opting in anyway. So it's not a necessary thing in your life. And so we wanted to build a painkiller and not a vitamin. 
So we happen to see this New York Times op-ed about the decline in community in the United States. And it cited a Pew Research Institute study that said 29% of Americans knew only a few of their neighbors, while 28% of Americans didn't know a single neighbor by name, which like blew my mind, right? Because growing up in the Bay Area where I grew up, I knew all my neighbors. My parents knew them. I played with the kids. I, I couldn't imagine a world in which upwards of 50% of Americans just didn't have that kind of connectivity. It just seemed bizarre. And so as we saw what was happening in the landscape of social media, and this is back in 2010, that social networks were becoming mainstream and ubiquitous. Facebook for your friends and family, Twitter for interests, LinkedIn for your professional network. We thought to ourselves, wait a minute, there's this problem in the world that is just screaming out for a solution to connect people with others in their local community. And so that's where we actually came up with the idea. And it took us a couple of, um, a couple of runs at it, really, just like talking through it and thinking about how we would build something and um, you know, how it would even work. We landed it in one neighborhood. We built a little prototype and we said, okay, well, let's go try this thing. We built a little prototype. Doesn't look all that different from what we have today, kind of the bones of it all. There's a news feed, a place to post, verification. Um, and we landed it in one neighborhood. And when that neighborhood worked, we tried another one. And when that neighborhood worked, we tried another one. And when that neighborhood was a dog with fleas and didn't work, we didn't get discouraged. <laughs> we carried on and we tried more neighborhoods. That actually ended up being Bill Gurley's neighborhood that was a dog with fleas. It didn't work at all. Um, so that was sort of disappointing. But that's kind of the origin story. And uh, after a year of being in private beta, by October of 2011, we were ready to share next door with the world. And it opened it up for anybody in the US to sign up for. So uh, that was a long way of saying that's who I am and that's how we started the company. <laughs> We'll be diving way more into the, the story in a, in a second. And I think what's, what's fantastic is you, you think about the environment that you grew up in here in the Bay Area, and you, you really watched the whole technological world evolve right before you and participated heavily in its, its formation, yeah. which I think is, is fantastic. And so I think in keeping with the theme of neighborhoods, you watched that neighborhood and the neighborhood we live in here, which is so prevalent with other social networks and other different social media-focused companies, you've helped watch that evolve. And so what I'd love to, to learn a little bit more about and to help our audience get a little more acquainted with, with Nextdoor is what makes Nextdoor different from other social networking sites and, and why is it really needed? So how many folks have actually used Nextdoor? Just show of hands. It's okay if you haven't. I know you're in the house. It's, it's all right. Um, well, good. So, so a fair number of people. Nextdoor is basically, we used to cast it as a social network for your neighborhood. It's a private social network for your neighborhood. And now going back to that original Pew Research study where over 50% of people have very weak ties into their neighborhood, one of the biggest ways in which we're different than most social networks is if you think about Facebook, you think about LinkedIn, you think about Twitter or Instagram, you're going in and you're curating the list of people that you either friend or follow. So you're opting in to the engagement that you choose with these platforms. With Nextdoor, it's a little bit different. We're putting you into a community on the basis of where you live. So every neighborhood in Nextdoor is a geographically bounded neighborhood. You come into Nextdoor, you sign up with your email address and your physical address. If a neighborhood exists at your address, you verify that you live at your address, and we have a number of different ways that we verify that you are actually a resident of the neighborhood, and then you get to join that neighborhood. 
and you land in there with a bunch of people who are also verified to live at your, in your neighborhood. That is fundamentally different than a lot of what we see elsewhere on social networks where, again, you're opting in either because you physically, you actually have a relationship with the person that you're communicating with on the network or because you uh, aspire to learn from somebody or you're influenced by somebody or you're a fan of somebody. And that's not at all the case. And the way that we think of Nextdoor vis-a-vis -vis social networking is that we're much more of a utility-driven service than a service that's about self-expression, right? On, on Instagram, you know, people are uh, taking pictures of their travels, the products that they're using, they're humble bragging about where they are. Um, lots, of, lots of fun stuff to follow, right? But, but really, it, it boils down to self-expression. Um, the same on Facebook. You're getting people's points of view on what's happening politically. You're getting pictures of their kids. Um, family vacations and maybe a little bit more intimate type of uh, interaction than, than on other networks. And on Twitter, you kind of don't know what you're going to get, right? You're, you're following a bunch of people and you, you don't know what they're going to say. And, and they have the right to spout off whatever is on their mind um, because they don't have to reciprocally follow you. You opted into listening to them. On Nextdoor, it's a little bit different. You are um, walking this careful line between people who you actually may run into and see in the, in the real world um, and different ways to leverage them to your benefit. And so what we see is that it's, it's really a lot of utility-driven use cases. You don't see people sharing photos of their kids on Nextdoor. You, say, you, you, you see people posting messages asking about babysitters for their kids. You don't see people posting about national politics on Nextdoor. You see people posting about uh, a new Whole Foods opening up in the area, or a Starbucks replacing the local coffee shop, and talking about whether that's something that they support or don't support. Um, you don't see people uh, really talking about their favorite big brands like Pepsi and Coke. They're talking about recommendations for local service providers and local businesses. And so it's really about utility, and it's really driven by this, this notion that your community can be a great resource for you, but it's undertapped and it's underutilized. And so if we can get you into that community, you're going to find benefit, and you're going to find it to be useful. Amazing. Did anybody get a chance to, to read the, the company manifesto on, on the way in? That, that would be a no. So I highly encourage you to check it out. because We, we might a, have to move that to a more <laughs> visible location, huh? What do you, what do you, what do you guess? This is okay. good user testing. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, so there's a, there's a quote in the, in the manifesto that I think really, really highlights one of the, the important ways that Nextdoor impacts how people connect. And so the, the quote is, it says, we're all about online chats that lead to more closed line chats. So what I get from that is that it seems like Nextdoor aims to, to really be a bridge between the, the online and the physical interaction. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on the role that Nextdoor plays on, on bridging that gap? Sure, this is something that we, we think of as, um, and I didn't coin this phrase, but bits that move atoms. So your use of a technology platform where bits are coming across the network um, compel you to go out into the real world and have an interaction with someone who lives in your community. And so the simplest of examples is if you post a message on Nextdoor um, saying that you are looking for a babysitter and someone responds and says, hey, I've got a great recommendation for a babysitter, you're going to have a human interaction with someone local that's going to take care of your child. Right? That's, that's a pretty incredible experience to have that facilitated by a platform. If you've lost your pet and your pet has gone missing and you post a message on Nextdoor, people in the neighborhood who don't even know you 
may be compelled to go outside their door and look around and see if they can see your pet. And we see hundreds of these examples every, you know, all, all the time we see these examples. Um, so there really is this moment at which you interact with a piece of content from a complete stranger that could lead to you actually having an interaction with that person in real life. And I think what that ends up doing is a couple of things. Number one, it strengthens the network. Um, you guys are all probably familiar with this concept of network effects, that the more people that use a particular product, the better it gets for everyone involved. Nextdoor is a great example of that, where as these neighborhoods come to scale and more and more people use the, use the product, when you post that message saying, hey, my pet has gone missing, there's more people who are now aware of the fact that your pet has gone missing, and there's more eyes out looking for that pet. And so that's an incredible, uh, incredible facet of, of what we're doing. And so I think the other part that's really interesting is when you look at what's happening, and I think we'll talk about this maybe a little bit later, but especially in times where people are under stress, times of natural disasters or um, tragedies that happen in the local community, or when people are really in need and are kind of desperate for help, um, we can be an incredible reflection of the humanity that really is part of people. It's a, it's a refreshing, I mean, it sounds a little bit of, you know, like mothers and apple pie, but, but it really is true that when people call for help, most people can reach down into that kind of humanity and, and find the strength to help if they have the capability to do so. And all you need is that platform. All you need is the connectivity to the people who need help and the people who are able to provide help. And so that's another way in which I think um, it really does restore your, your, your faith in humanity when you see people using a platform like ours and they're actually going out and creating relationships on the basis of that. Amazing. I think where I'd, lo I'd love to dive in a little bit deeper is, sure. is what that, some examples of what that looks like. Because I think many, many of us in here may have been affected by where, where things have tried family and tried community, whether that is the most recent fires or, or other things. Um, I think especially because for us, probably it's more, more personal with, with the fires recently here. Yeah. Hurricanes down south. Like, tell us some examples of, of how people have been able to, to use the social network of Nextdoor to, to manifest what you're talking about, the best expression yeah, of the, humanity. Amazing. You know, related to what you talked about, about the Napa fires um, and up in Santa Rosa, uh, there was a great example of this. Um, a woman named Peyton Walton, who's a registered nurse up in Santa Rosa, uh, who had just worked a three-day shift nonstop at the hospital up in Santa Rosa, caring for people who were victims of the fire. And um, obviously the fire was devastating, especially in Santa Rosa. People's houses were raised to the ground. They lost everything that they had. And Peyton lived in Mill Valley, which is, you know, I don't know, 30 miles south or so of Santa Rosa, 20 miles south of Santa Rosa. And so she went back home. Um, this woman who has this incredible uh, spirit of giving, already she's a nurse. She spent three straight days at the hospital. Um, she came back home and she said, what more can I do to support the victims of this fire? And so she put out a message in her Mill Valley community and said, look, I just got back. Um, the devastation up in Santa Rosa is unimaginable. These people need help. And she was able to rally the support of 7,000 plus people in her local community to help over 250 families up in Santa Rosa to start to rebuild their lives. That's incredible. And again, without this resource, how would she have been able to connect with all of those people, right? And, and of course, it takes a really special person like Peyton. Um, we, we consider her an absolute hero. Um, and 
it's 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 really really touching that someone has that that uh, that ability to give right i mean after three days of working at the hospital she came back and said like i'm going to do more and she was still working at the hospital while this was happening and so that's an incredible story another one that that comes to mind is during hurricane harvey which again um a complete disaster lots and lots of loss um, across the board property loss um, loss of lives you know a very very challenging situation when something like that happens of that magnitude what we see is that the public infrastructure really crumbles under the stress whether it's 911 or first responders and they're doing the best that they can but they have limited capacity to help and so for someone who's desperately stuck in their home the water level rising they're standing on the roof of their building and they can't get through to 911. They're in the most desperate of circumstances. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. And so they post a message on Nextdoor saying, I'm stuck here in my home. Here's my address. Here's a photograph of what the situation looks like here. Can anybody help me? Can anybody point me in the right direction of where I can get help? And for a neighbor to respond and say, hey, I'm two blocks away. My husband has a canoe. He's out rescuing people and transporting them to safety. We will come get you as soon as we can. It's just a remarkable story, again, reflecting that desire of people to help one another, especially in the most dire of situations, but actually having the means to find the help that they need. And those are just two examples of thousands that we hear uh, you know, over, the, over the course of the year. And it's really inspiring to us. In fact, at our company all-hands meetings, one of the most um, inspiring parts of those all-hands meetings, we do them every Monday. We talk through kind of the operational stuff in the company. Here are the metrics. Here are th how things are going. Here are some of our new hires. Um, but we talk about a member story. These member stories are submitted to us um, by our members into our communications group. And these member stories are incredible. Um, the compassion of people, whether it's trying to find a donor for a liver someone who needs a liver transplant, finding that connection on next door, um, whether it's rescuing people in times of need, whether it's providing, um, I remember there was a story of a woman who was coming back from the hospital and um, she'd experienced paralysis and she was in a wheelchair and the neighbors all got together and they built her a wheelchair ramp so that when she got home, she could enter her home. Um, these are remarkable stories. Uh, and these people are truly heroes, but. Um, we feel like we've provided some social lubricant or infrastructure um, for them to use to facilitate some of this work. I think those, those are just some amazing examples of how a social network has the capacity to empower people to make that type of, of impact. From, from to transition to a little bit of a different perspective, from, from your role and, and with the work that you're doing with Nextdoor, when you look at all of the other different, different social networks, what do you see as the, the biggest challenges that that all of these different social networks face? Yeah, I think a lot has been made of, um, and I think it's pretty, pretty well um, understood these days that in these, you know, we talked about how when you join these other social networks, you're opting into what you listen to. And there is, um, I think, what people are calling the bubble effect of being in this echo chamber of ideology uh, or a viewpoint where you don't really get to build empathy for people who have differing viewpoints. And you get to choose who you follow. Um, you get to choose who you friend on Facebook. You get to choose what news sources you listen to. Um, this is really unique in humanity, right? Um, I think over time, the same kinds of challenges 
could be applied to any technological innovation, especially when it comes to the way that we broadcast news and information. So back when the radio had become popular, um, there of course were fears that that could lead to the spread of uh, misinformation and communist philosophies and things like that, right? Um, McCarthyism is not too far behind us. Um, the same happened with the television, right? What are people watching? What is influencing culture? What is influencing people's behavior and understanding of one another? Now, I think what's changed is these social media, these social platforms have provided this convenient alternative to in-person or what, what we call kind of a, a geeky term, synchronous interaction with other people. Right? The synchronous interaction is I say something to you, you say something back to me, we have a conversation, we look each other in the eye, or we can hear the intonation of our voices, and that influences the way that we speak to each other. But when you're talking purely through text, or you're talking purely through pictures, or you're talking purely through the information that you share, there's a lot of room for misinterpretation, misunderstanding, um, and I think we're starting to experience that. So I think that is one um, big challenge is, you know, how do we manage um, what, what has been so important to us as human beings, this in-person interaction, this understanding and empathy that we're able to create for one another in a medium that doesn't really deliver that um, in, in the most uh, high fidelity way. It's really interesting actually, I had a good conversation with a guy at UC Berkeley. His name is uh, Dr. Keltner and he studies nothing but the psychology of human beings and human emotion. And he was central in Facebook's um, initiative to add more depth to their, uh, to their like button. So you remember back in the day, you, you just hit like and it was just a one button thing and now you can do like a smiley or a heart. And um, the whole point of that was to be able to convey more emotion and more empathy on the platform. It's a reason that you don't see I hate this or like you suck or you know, something that, that would emote something so terrible. Um, but there is a, a, a big body of research that's going on around the psychological effects of social networks. So I think that's the second challenge, is these networks um, can be addictive. Your, your personality and your well-being and your mental health can be tied into the kind of information you're consuming on these networks. And whether it's um, something like the president saying something disparaging on Twitter, or whether it's someone calling you fat on a picture that you've posted on Instagram, which uh, you would be shocked to hear the correlation in teen suicide rates and the proliferation of this kind of you know, online bullying and things. So I think there's something deeply psychological that is affecting us as a populace and we need to understand how to manage that. I think it's part of the reason that um, Facebook is trying to bring their focus back to friends and family posts from friends and family and not so much of the publishers and news and things like that, that that have the opportunity to become an upsetting experience. So I think between the bubble effect and the psychological impact that the addictive nature and the, um, the emotional toll that it takes sometimes to inter interact with these platforms, uh, I think those are two real, real significant challenges. So you mentioned a, a little bit about Facebook and some of the adjustments that, that they're making. I'd love to, to hear from, from your perspective, what, what effect do you think that that will have Focusing on friends and family, what do you think is the impact of that shift? Well, I, I actually admire Facebook's decision to do this, and I, I admire it in a couple of regards. One, um, they are taking responsibility for the platform and for the impact that the platform may potentially be having on its users and its on society as a large uh, at large. And so, um, I admire what Mark and, and team are doing there, and Cheryl and team. 
Now, in terms of what is actually, what the impact is gonna be, I suspect two things. I'm not an expert on, on Facebook and their engagement strategy, but I think there is a, a strange and often perverse relationship between uh, the metrics that a company observes and the actions that they take to fulfill those metrics. And in a lot of these online properties, uh, the primary metric that you look at is engagement. How often are people using the service? How often are they interacting with things? How many times do they like something? How many times do they comment on something? How many times are they posting messages? And I think to get beyond that very basic understanding of those metrics as just being things that need to move up and to the right, I think Facebook is saying, you know what, we'll take a hit on the engagement metrics. We're okay with that because we understand that people need to have a positive experience with our platform. We understand that people, you know, that is what's gonna lead us to long-term success as a platform. It's not just a, a bunch of clickbait on the platform, it's a bunch of meaningful interactions with people who are meaningful. And getting back to a little bit of their core, for those who remember, Facebook started out as a platform for college communities, for, for the students at college communities to connect with one another. And, and like most platforms, um, they all start in this very, very altruistic, simple, naive, um, almost innocent sort of way. And as these platforms come to scale and they become attractive, uh, either commercially or politically or um, you know, to people that have the power and, and need power, um, then you, you start to encounter some of these challenges. So I really admire what Facebook is doing. Um, I'm rooting for them. I'm a big fan of the platform um, and have been for a long time. And, and I think it's, it's really admirable when a company can make a stand that may have some short-term negative impact for their platform, but they have the belief that in the long term, doing what's best for their users is ultimately what's best for the company. So, so I do admire what they're doing. Amazing. So a little bit about what you were commenting on uh, leads me to the next question that, I, that I'm, I'm curious to learn more about from you. You talked a lot about community and, and meaningful interactions and how some of these different platforms, and your own included, facilitate these. Mm -hmm. From building almost over 160,000 communities, what have you learned about community building that helps facilitate those meaningful interactions? Wow. Um, you know, actually, I think the latest number is, I think we're closer to 200,000 almost? What are we, 190? I think we're in 85% of neighborhoods in the U.S. now. So I can't it's keep pretty, up. I can't keep up. Uh, neither can I. I had, to, I had to check with Jenny back there to, to see what the number was. Um, so what have we learned about community building? Um, number one, that it's possible at all, which I think was an existential threat to, our, um, to the company creation. At the very beginning, we had a lot of concern about how can you grow a property like this where you're trying to, you know, in a world where all these different products grow virally, and you get from zero to 100 million users in 18 months, you know, like an Instagram or a Snapchat. Um, how are we supposed to do that when over 50% of people don't even know their neighbors, right? They, they, and certainly don't have electronic correspondence with them. So I think we've found that it is possible. It doesn't come for free. It doesn't come as quickly. So you have to have, um, you know, our company is constructed in a slightly different way. For those of you who are interested in, in sort of the, um, the dynamics of company building and fundraising and things like that, you have to have a really long view on a company like this. This is not a company that um, delivers on its vision in five years. This is a company that delivers on its vision in 30 years. And so you have to have uh, an understanding that over time, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, getting every single person on next door, 
will take a very, very long time, but you have the conviction to sort of follow that path, um, I think is really, really important. The, the thing that I think that we've learned the most about community building is that there is a bit of a universal truth to this idea that people want to be connected with their community. They maybe don't understand on day one why it's important. So we had a lot of people when we started the company who said, oh geez, a social network for your neighbors? Like why would I want to connect with my neighbors? I don't want them in my business. I don't want to see their pictures. And you know, I, I, I just want my own space. And, and fair, totally fair, right? That's, that's fine. You don't need to have them over for backyard barbecues or dinner every night. But they um, underestimate how valuable it is as a network to have everyone in your local community participating on a network like this. And once they get a taste of that, that little puff of dopamine that is their first interaction where they've asked a question and people have responded, hey guys, I'm looking to remodel my kitchen. Uh, does anyone have a recommendation? Well, guess what? Not only do a bunch of neighbors have recommendations, they live close by and they invite you over to look at their kitchen so you can actually see the work. What an incredible resource that is, right? And what an incredible experience it is to, ex to go through that experience. And so um, what we found is that people, no matter how dubious at the beginning of even signing up for the platform, can be converted into the biggest fans of a platform like ours through these uh, meaningful interactions that they have. The third thing that I'll say is when we started the company, it was very, very neighborhood-centric. We thought of the neighborhood as a good place to start because it was the strongest sense of identity locally. Hey, where do you live? Oh, I live in Pacific Heights. I live in the Mission, right? And so it's, a, it's an easy question to answer. It's an easy way to, to identify yourself. And so we thought that as the identity was a really strong thing. But what we came to find out was that in a lot of use cases, your community really extends to a much larger space. It could include your city. It could include the entire state. It could include a much larger region. And a lot of that depends on, uh, if you think of it as a metaphor, it's almost this hub and spoke metaphor, where at the middle is you. But these spokes that are coming off of you represent all kinds of different facets to your identity. I'm a father or a parent. I have a kid in the local school. I'm a, a software engineer who works in San Francisco, who may be seeking carpools, right? I'm a dog owner. I'm uh, conservative, I'm liberal, whatever it may be, right? All these different facets of your personality come out. And we think the community now uh, is a useful, is a really useful, maybe even critical utility in sort of cultivating that aspect of your personality. And so we, you know, those are some of the things that I think we've learned in, in community building over time. Amazing. So I've got one more question, and then we're going to open it up for, for Q&A. So start to reflect on the questions that you'd like to ask Prakash. But we were talking about, in the back, you and I were talking about that there's responsibility both in the users of, of these different platforms and in the, the companies that facilitate that. And we've talked a little bit about tonight about some of the, the ways that different companies are overcoming those, those obstacles. What do you think is the responsibility of the user in having a positive social media, social network experience? I would say, let's open it up to social, all social networks. Yeah, I, again, I don't, I don't claim to be an expert on this, but my own perspective on being a user of social media is that the single most important thing is being authentic to who you are. There are a lot of perverse incentives in kind of social media world uh, to post things that you might think 
are going to be popular or post things that you think might uh, create an impression of you that is more favorable with uh, you know, a bunch of anonymous followers, right? Um, getting your follower counts up by uh, you know, presenting a particular image of who you are. Uh, and I think that's really dangerous, right? And I think it, it, it speaks more to um, some of the vanity metrics and uh, some of these things that, that just aren't really that important at the end of the day, right? What's really important at the end of the day is that your mental well-being is good, that you feel like you're sharing content that is authentic to who you are and, and what's important to you, that you're following people that reinforce your, your values and make you feel good about um, what's going on, but that also that you're well-informed in general. And I think uh, one of the things that we talked about was I think these platforms have uh, the potential to really lift us all up, to up-level the conversation uh, in a sense, to, to, to make us all smarter. Right? If you think about the promise of the internet at the very beginning of the internet, um, it was to decentralize access to information, to take information that was previously locked up in uh, research facilities and museums and libraries and present it to the world. And with that, to up-level our understanding of humanity and of the world that we live in. And I think in a lot of ways that has actually come true. You know, we've, we've seen some of the promise of that, but we've also seen some of the dangers in having this unregulated, decentralized, um, and in some ways, uh, kind of the opposite of decentralized, these power structures of companies that just know so much about us and know how to feed us what we actually probably don't need, right, in some cases. Um, that we probably would value having a little bit more of a diverse point of view or a little bit more diversity of thought. But the companies know what we like. They know everything about us. And so they kind of feed us more of what we like. Um, and it becomes this kind of vicious cycle. And so I think um, what we have to do as consumers of these products is come back and take a little bit of ownership for our identity online, right? And I think some of the, the new technologies, and this is a whole different conversation which I'm woefully you know, kind of uh, qualified to talk about, but I think some of the technologies like blockchain um, have the real potential to bring back some of the early promise of the internet in decentralizing and giving us an opportunity to take a little bit more control of our, our identities online and, and take control of what, what it is that we think is important. Um, but I think that's the biggest thing, is recognizing that the world that we live in uh, operates in this cycle. You use products, products understand that you like them, they give you more of what you like. And that's a self-reinforcing cycle. And to break out of that is really, really difficult. And if the, the platform providers um, are so generous as to give us some tools and some mechanisms to kind of break out of that, then you know, that's, that's all gravy. But uh, in the meantime, let's be conscious of the fact that that's happening and be conscious and, and, and woke uh, and, <laughs> and go out and kind of reclaim our identities and, and be authentic to who we are. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.